This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, this is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I'm here today with Dr. Bill Nance. Hello. And we're here today as well with Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Nate Jennings. Hello, good to be here. And today we're going to talk about uh, one of the more um, relevant aspects of what we do here at the Command and General Staff College in the Department of Military History, which is how the U.S. Army uses history. Uh, So, Colonel Jennings, I'll, I'll start with the obvious question. How does the U.S. Army use history? Well, at a, at a baseline, the U.S. Army uses history to inform critical thinking and judgment. Uh, we need an officer corps, an NCO corps, soldiers uh, that can think through the problems that they are assigned, whether that be in a training environment, an operational environment, a combat assignment. Uh, and history can be a powerful instrument for uh, enabling that, uh, that problem solving. Okay, so um, let's dig a little deeper into that. Uh, we know history is kind of one of the humanities courses, and, and it has those humanities aspects, like you said, critical thinking, synthesis, and analysis. Um, beyond kind of the very general idea of, for us, officers, student officers need to be problem solvers, what are some specific ways the U.S. Army uses history? Yeah, so one way is to select a campaign, uh, an example, uh, and see if we can mine it for understanding how uh, uh, commanders, armies, leaders in that time uh, engaged in warfare. And all warfare is actually problem solving. Uh, it, it is, uh, the problem is how do you defeat this enemy, accomplish these objectives in a specific time and place. And so examining how uh, other human beings did this uh, under the most challenging of circumstances, uh, which is the endeavor of warfare, uh, can really inform um, our creativity, our inspiration, insights, uh, and uh, just in- increase the capacity of our, of our officers to think through those challenges. Now, uh, Dr. Jennings, one of the things that uh we we spend a lot of time with is there's the trap about the lessons learned well this teaches us this and one of the things that I often spend time with the students is like I'm not teaching you how to defend the Ardennes forest against the Germans in the winter of 1944 so how do you avoid falling into that trap of well it happened this way therefore this how do you avoid that yeah that's right and uh, that's something I bring up right at the start of any presentation or engagement with a military audience to make it clear we're not looking for uh, uh, lessons or rules that we can replicate. In fact, I'll offer up a quote by um, probably the the man himself, Carl von Clausewitz, uh, the Prussian war theorist. He even said, quote, history has no lessons or rules to offer the student. It could only broaden his understanding and strengthen his critical judgment. What he's saying is that that none of us will ever fight at the Suez Canal again in October of 1973. Uh, But we can study that, how those combatants fought there, 
how they struggled against each other, the decisions they made, how they integrated new technologies, how culture informed their practice, uh, and we can learn from that. Uh, but there's no replicable lessons to be had. It's about insights. So with that said, the kind of the obvious rejoinder then is, well, couldn't we just take a set of hypotheticals and just war game out the hypotheticals rather than do all that boring, boring historical reading? Yeah, we could, but I think we'd lose some of the richness of a, a vibrant human example. Um, we can get in the heads of some, some of these commanders, these soldiers, and understand um, how, wh- how are they perceiving the challenges ahead of them? How did the culture of their country, the organizational culture of their formations, uh, how, how did all that influence how they were approaching uh, uh, the, the conflict, the mission that is given to them. So to kind of build off that a little bit further, because one of the neat things that we get to do here is, is that we teach professional military officers every day. So how is teaching professional military officers history different than, say, even teaching uh, when you and I both taught at the uh, United States Military Academy together? Most of the students we taught there were brand new. They had no military experience whatsoever, so they were going to become professionals. They were professionals in, in, in uh, they were they were going to become professionals. But how do you? How, what's the difference between, say, teaching a professional officer who has years of experience under their belt versus somebody new to the profession or somebody not of the profession? Yeah, the, well, the more mature field grade officer uh, is going to have harder problems to solve. Uh, at the operational level, strategic level, and kind of the higher you go into the strategic level, there'll be probably more uh, uh, themes, overarching themes that we can track across the span of history, and and that can help them. I think it's also worth pointing out, um, for people who don't practice what the the kind of lessons or insights are, it's not so much about the direct one-to-one the way it might be in a professional military education, right? So for our officers, there are often one-to-one or perhaps like one-to-two or one-to-one-and-a-half lessons that they might take away from any historical example, um, even if they're very simplistic. Whereas in in a traditional academic classroom of students who are not officers or embryonic officers, it's more about understanding, as you said, the human side. And the thing that a sterile case study, you know, a science fiction study, a war game lacks is the human factor. Because if you design a scenario and you have branching decision trees that you can follow, or even an AI to, to game against, you're lacking the panic that might happen. Or on the other hand, you're lacking the person who is able to avoid panic. Mm-hmm. And what you learn from history is is again, not necessarily any one-to-one lesson, the way history is often, I would say, mistaught. Mm-hmm. But you're learning, you're learning what people did in any given situation, and you're learning the factors that drove them to that. And I don't know, um, I can't speak for you, but I know in my classroom, often students are frustrated because they want to they wanna see a different historical outcome. They want to do things differently. They want the U.S. to win in Vietnam. But if you explain all of, the, all of the push factors, they realize that the choices that were made were made because they didn't really have too many choices. Right, and one of those push factors being uh, political mandates. Uh, so I can go back to my example of the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. 
both sides commit actions, major of offensive actions that are that just amount to military malpractice. Just if it was in a in a in a sterile box, we would say this unbelievable. You would execute this. They have they have political uh, directives driving them to take the offense at times when it's unwise, and they have to pay the price for that and and reconstitute and learn from that. And it you end up with a dialogue between the operational artist on the battlefield and the policymaker back in the capital in renegotiating the terms of the campaign. So you've driven us now to the, the dusty uh, roads of the Suez Canal in 1973. So let's go ahead and dig into this example a bit. I know it's one that you have used out in the force um, in, in the last few months. So set this war up for us. Set up this 1973 war, which is called by the Israelis the Yom Kippur War, often called by the Arab states the Ramadan War. What, what, what's the lead up to it? Well, it takes place uh, in 1973 against a backdrop of Israeli military dominance. They defeated all comers from all directions, uh, not just in the previous war, probably in several wars, uh, featuring armored warfare, uh, aerial strike. Uh, in, but the last war in particular, the Six-Day War, uh, establishes their, their, uh, a dominant posture in the Middle East where they seized a, a bunch of territory, uh, uh, especially the, the Sinai, the Golan Heights, uh, the West Bank. Um, and so it, they have a confidence that they can hold this ground. And so this, this next war, though, will be very different. In 73, the Egyptians... Uh, and the Syrians, but especially the Egyptians, take the offensive with a brilliant example of operational art, uh, a limited objective using operational and strategic surprise where they seize the Suez Canal and defeat the Israeli counterattacks. Uh, and with a lot of uh, resonance, by the way, with what's happening in Ukraine, because the Egyptians successfully disaggregate the uh, Israeli joint approach. What had been a very sexful, uh, successful marriage between fast-moving heavy armor and close air support in front uh, were very successful in the Six-Day War. They separate those two and defeat them in detail with new technologies, new air defense, new anti-armor, uh, and it really um, just sets the Israelis back on their heels in, the, in uh, just really a, a, a kind of a systems shock takes over the entire IDF. Um, so that's an, exa- that's, that's an example of uh, in a adversary that they thought was inferior using new technologies to inflict severe attrition on a military that was really designed for decisive maneuver. So let's take this uh, kind of from the beginning. We've got a coalition of Arab states and the the chief coalition partners in 73 are Egypt and Syria. And they know, based on the 67 war, that they are inferior in many ways to their opponent, Israel. Not just in terms of, of ability but especially in terms of the gains the Israelis made, especially for the right. Egyptians, as you mentioned. Um, the Israelis control the Sinai, and so that gives them a forward position that the Egyptians have to deal with. So how do the Egyptians go about redressing some of these problems in the interwar years? Well, they basically reinvent their army. They professionalize it, uh, literacy requirements, uh, and they buy a whole new kit almost off the shelf from Russia. Um, and this isn't a war machine designed to do one thing, and that's a short offense-defensive combination, and that's exactly what they do. They, it is designed to cross the canal and set up a defense on the far side, not to invade Israel, not to take even back the whole, the whole Sinai. 
Um, and so as long as they stick to that, the Egyptians are extremely successful. It's when the policymaker demands they do something else, as in launch an armored offensive into the central Sinai, that's when it goes off the rails. So you, you mentioned, uh, and I want to kind of you know, highlight this a little bit more, this doctrinal effect of, I know what I'm good at, and I'm going to build my army to take advantage of that, which is they're just going to move and stop. Why don't they build their army to do a mobile war against the Israelis in the, in the deserts of the Sinai? Well, the easy answer is they don't have the Air Force to support that. Um, and that's that they know, again, this is an army that is recovering from devastating defeat in 1967, short time ago. So this is probably about all they can ask of this. And by the way, their new kit supports a defensive posture. The Sagar missiles on the ground, the, a whole suite of SAMS batteries. This is a, really a, a defensive kit. So going a so deep maneuver would challenge uh, that the use of that technology. So real quick, a Sagar is? Uh, it's a, basically a suitcase uh, missile that it, one infantryman can wield and take out a tank. Okay, and a, and a SAM? Surface-to-air missile. They have a whole series of these ranging from small to large, fixed to mobile, uh, in addition to air defense artillery, all radar guided. And we're going to use this term later, I'm sure. So IADS? IADS, integrated air defense. This is kind of the network pulling all of this together from command and control, radar detection, and the actual gunners with the missiles. And it should be noted, this is really the first war where you see all of these used extensively. The ATGM, anti-tank guided missile, of which the Sagar is one of the first uh, types of. It's been seen before. We have our own variant called the TOW. Yes. We still have that same missile, just much upgraded now. But everyone has used it, but no one's actually ever seen these on a, used on a mass scale until this war. Yeah, and the Israelis helped them with their own combined arms malpractice, uh, with a tank-centric assault immediately upon losing the canal, which uh, yeah, provides just uh, a whole bunch of targets, basically, for Egyptian infantrymen who have dug in, in, uh, into the sand. So why is, this, why is this so disruptive to the Israelis? We, these, we've got this you know, better-equipped Egyptian army, uh, they've been training on these systems. Why is it such a problem for the Israelis that the Egyptians now have individually fired anti-tank missiles and integrated air defense systems? It's because the Israelis can't apply a joint approach where they gain asymmetric advantages. Uh, so the ideal is you know, uh, Israeli aircraft killing tanks, Israeli tanks killing other soft targets and using really uh, uh, blitzkrieg tactics. At attack in depth to shatter an enemy order of, ba order of battle, from the battle from the rear to the front in avoiding attrition. And that's really the worst nightmare for the Israelis here. They cannot win a war of attrition with these much larger Arab countries, and that's what this sets up. Any attempt to keep taking the canal back uh, will only keep bleeding the Israeli uh, armament. Now, one of the things that we do here, of course, is that I, I love talking campaigns and battles, but one of the things that, uh, and while we're talking today, right, is it's not just a study of a campaign for the sheer study of the campaign. So you've actually talked at a number of our uh, higher headquarters recently on this. Uh, you've been to three corps down at Fort Hood. You've been to First Cavalry Division, also at Fort Hood. You've uh, you've talked with Army Futures Command, which I believe is out of Austin, mm -hmm. a lot of Texas, uh, and um, so. 
the 73 work, great, wonderful. How are we using that study as we're uh, to, be, to be useful for us? Well, just first and foremost, a cautionary tale. The, the Achilles heel of the U.S. military, same as the Israelis, is attrition. A war that bogs down into an attritional body-for-body, uh, grinding it out across a large front. The U.S. Army is not really designed for that. The U.S. military is designed for rapid, decisive uh, maneuver warfare. And so understanding why the Israelis initially had such problems can inform our approach. Not just because it happened then, because we've just seen this happen uh, in the Iraqi attack on Mosul in 2017, the Nagorno-Karabakh war, massive problems for the Armenians. Basically, the Azerbaijanis using a drone artillery nexus eliminate maneuver from the battlefield. And then finally, we're seeing it now in Ukraine. The Battle of Kiev is a great example of an attempt at a joint maneuver approach that immediately became separated, disaggregated, attrited, and forced to withdraw from that part of the theater by Russia. So let's, uh, let's get the lesson out of this 73 example. So the Egyptians and Syrians have these new systems. They, of course, have the preponderance of numbers. Uh, they surprise the Israelis, which it takes another part of the Israeli mm-hmm. um, war effort away, rapid mobilization. Uh, it, uh, then what happens? Uh, this is where politics gets involved. Uh, you know, again, Klautswitz, it's an extension of a uh, political uh, directive, uh, that being war. And so basically the, the Syrians ask for the Egyptians to mount a renewed offensive to take pressure off the flagging goal in front. And that's exactly what they do. Um, the Egyptian army will attack into this, towards the central Sinai and will have the biggest tank battle since the Battle of the Kursk, and they will lose badly. More than 250 tanks, basically in a day, they will have to retreat back to their defensive positions along the Sinai, but now their offensive, po- offensive capability has been severely uh, attrited. Um, and this sets conditions now for the Israelis to go on offense. See, part of the Israeli problem is they want to cross the canal, fight this out in Africa, and force an end of the war on their terms. But they can't do that while there's a substantial amount of Egyptian armor uh, on the west side of the canal. There's effectively two divisions waiting for them that will just hammer the river crossing. Part of the offensive required uh, the Egyptian army to bring that armor to the east side and use it to lead the renewed offensive. So with that eliminated, conditions are set for an Israeli counteroffensive. So an insight for our students could be, again, it's not just don't let your president order a counterattack. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen exactly like that. But instead, it's that political considerations are going to be driving your operations, and you have to be prepared for that, and you have to prepare yourself mentally for the fact that something might happen that you might not want. Is that, is that sure. a fair, is that sure. a fair That's, reading? We see armies doing incomprehensible things throughout history, not because the generals are idiots and don't know what they're doing, because they're receiving political mandates, uh, sometimes events beyond that are actually understandable from the perspective of the policymaker. But there's that disconnect, and you know, well, they, for, it's called the unequal dialogue because the general is always going to be on the losing end there. Well, as for instance, Egypt, the uh, the Egyptian president knows, even though this is probably he knows that this isn't a good idea, but he knows that uh, the worst idea is letting his ally falter. 
Sure, this is coalition politics. Yeah, and I, I think one of the one of the lessons we might take away from this is we often focus too much on tactics, and in this case, it's strategy that matters more than tactics. Now, they should, in theory, be nested within each other, but that's not always possible because, of course, Egypt can't control Syria, and they are co-equal partners. It doesn't really matter what they want if their partner's losing. Sure, and image, the image in across the Arab world of abandoning your ally is unacceptable. So this this forces this foolhardy attack and really uh, changes the course of the war. Um, meanwhile, is, the Israeli field commanders are getting their own political direction, and that's to cross the canal. Uh, and so they will do a risky penetration at the center of the canal, where they will begin attacking the SAMs and gain and really seize operational initiative. They'll begin to deconstruct the uh, integrated air defense shield from the inside out and allow this uh, a restoration of this joint approach to deep maneuver. So, so again, again, not for uh, so for a U.S. Army division looking at this, it's not okay. Well, in order to take out the Egyptian SAM sites, you first have to cross the Suez Canal. But again, it's a case of you might have to fundamentally change how your doctrine and your organization on the fly mm -hmm. in order to achieve effects when the enemy presents something that he has, that you have not prepared for. And, and that counterintuitive approaches may be required. So one of the thing, interesting things that happens here is the ground forces open up the window of opportunity for the, air, for the Israeli Air Force. And it's supposed to work the other way around. And usually we see it the other way around. You know, air interdiction, strategic bombing, close air support is really paving the way for the ground offensive. Uh, that was tried. It didn't work. The Israelis lose more than 50 aircraft in maybe the first four or five days of the war. Uh, they cannot sustain that attrition. And so now it's the ground forces that have to accept what is actually enormous risk, pushing tanks to the far side of the canal and beginning raids on the SAMs, uh, the various missile batteries. Um, and so the risk doesn't stop there, though. Once they're across, they have to go and they can't stop. Right now we're into what might be called decision cycle warfare. The Israelis are inside the, the decision cycle of both from Demat, uh, from Cairo all the way down to the two fi uh, field army commanders for the Egyptians, and they just can't catch up. Uh, similar to the German invasion of France in 1940, the the more the farther and faster the Israelis move with this tank uh, aircraft um, now symbiotic relationship. Um, they keep keep furthering these asymmetries and stay ahead of the uh, any response by the Egyptians. Dumb question for the cavalry and armor commanders in the room: um, Aren't tanks supposed to be doing audacious things where they go racing off behind enemy lines, attacking things? That's that's a dangerous way to live. If the conditions aren't set, uh, tanks tanks uh, you know turn into big targets, and that's one of the points we can learn from the Israelis. Uh, they initially did not have an adequate combined arms approach, meaning using artillery, infantry, engineers, along with tanks, scouts, all in innovative ways to essentially allow commanders to problem solve at the front. Um, they went in hard with just a bunch of tanks, essentially, in the initial counterattack. They solved that problem and integrate more infantry, mechanized infantry, self-propelled artillery to enable uh, the reduction of some of the strong points they come across. Um, and so that's an example of, of the Israelis learning uh, really out of desperation when in their time of need. Yeah. When you're in a tank 
and you're attacking a group of infantrymen who are not trained or are disciplined enough to stand against an armor force without the proper technology, it's a good day. You can uh, you can ride them down like uh, old school cavalry. The difference being is that they are trained and equipped, trained and disciplined enough just to stand against the armor. Leave the technology alone for a second. They can stand back. They can get out of your way because they're not suicidal. And then they're going to kill your logist your logisticians because the tank is a wonderful beast. The number one vulnerability of the tank is the fueler that has to come behind it to keep it moving. And if they kill your fueler, you can uh, drive all the di all, uh, you can drive until your gas tank runs out and then you die, or you stop and then they kill you. Yeah. Um, alternatively, if they now have had technology, if they have saggers, if they have saggers, if they have RPGs, ro rocket propelled grenades basically a, a modern version of bazooka um the idea is now they can let you drive past them and they will shoot you in the sides or the rear and this becomes a fundamental problem the e the hardest guy in the world to kill on the battlefield is an infantryman in his hole he's very hard to find fix and kill uh, now the way around that is you use artillery to suppress and then you have an infantryman go up on the ground, look the guy in the eye and then stab him with a bayonet or shoot him with a rifle. It's very hard to get that guy with a tank. But if you don't have that infantry, you don't have that artillery, as Colonel Jennings was mentioning, you're just, uh, they're just going to let you drive past and then either shoot you in the rear or better yet, kill your logisticians. Yeah, and again, I would say this is resonating today. We saw Russia try a very similar thing, a joint armored approach to taking uh, the capital of Ukraine, and it failed disastrously because they didn't apply uh, a, a combined armed solutions to the Ukrainian defense, which was not insurmount insurmountable. Inspirational, yes, but a proper uh, dose of artillery, different combat arms applied would have actually allowed the armor to have more success, and the Russians were incapable of that. And of course, the lesson is obvious for our students here. It, you know, what assumptions are we making or they making about how warfare is going to look in the next five, ten years? Uh, is our other types of combat um, capabilities like drones going to upset the natural order? Um, is our joint approach going to provide the necessary offsets or asymmetric advantages to allow this? decisive maneuver. My assumption, every American president will demand a decisive, uh, conclusive win to a war. And that's going to demand an offensive approach that really, uh, if not properly synchronized, integrated, uh, we could find ourselves in a bad place. Well, let's talk about the kind of the abuses of history, because 67 okay. to 73 <laughs> is, a, is a great point to do that. Because you could argue that the, the Israelis used history they looked at 1967, where they did use cavalry charges with tanks to great success. You can quibble yeah. on the details, <laughs> but the, right. the, the broad scope looked like that. And that's how they, they said, hey, we don't need to invest in artillery because the Air Force is doing it for us. The infantry doesn't need to really, uh, is having a hard time keeping up. We don't need them because obviously we succeeded without this. Now there's a lot of detail that I that is either wrong or um, glossed over in that narrative. So couldn't they look at that and say we we studied history and we built the army that then got handed its problems in '73? What are the challenges here? Yeah, so that is the challenge. What do you keep? What do you take away? 
What insights, keyword, do you take from that uh, past event, especially if it's informing the DNA of your own army? Um, if some of your credibility is resting on that victory. Um, and so that, that is the challenge, and there's actually no hard and fast answer. That just takes uh, a deep and critical study. It takes probably some red teaming. We need to let opposing arguments in the room to question, to question what, what, is, an, what is a drone swarm going to do to the, an armor brigade in the offense five, ten years from now? How will we counter that? Um, we're seeing, again, in many of the recent wars, uh, you maneuver is ex is apparently very expensive. Uh, it's it's very difficult in a fires dominated environment, which is what we're seeing. And should we assume that that won't apply to to us? Will uh, when we look at uh, the challenges with river crossing between both the Russians and the Ukrainians, is that is that something we we have in the bag? Should or or should we take actually a little bit of humility here and assume uh, that we need to relook that and and see in an era of a transparent battlefield with ubiquitous sensory and optics, uh, will our bridges be targeted as well? Should we challenge the role of myth in, of course. Uh, in uh, when we look at history? And this is difficult because every army, air force, every institution has a story it has to tell about itself. Um, and what you know? When is the story outpacing reality? Well, the top ribbon on the U.S. Army flag is Lexington 1775, right? <laughs> so there's there's a resonance here, but there's also a danger. Yeah, absolutely. And but you need that story at the same time, right? You have to have that confidence, that uniting vision, uh, that that mythos about the institution. So that's very important, and some of them can be very useful, such as the perseverance at Valley Forge. Uh, incredibly important to the, the background of the U.S. Army. Um, the crossing of the Delaware, using that initiative. So it's important, but you just have to, uh, again, you got to question the assumptions and not let it turn into um, a, directive. Over, a directive or overconfidence yeah. about, about warfare. In particular, in our case, our, our love affair with maneuver and decision, which is any historical survey will tell you hard to come by in warfare. And uh, as a former professor of mine and colleague of both of ours, uh, Professor Tom Nimick, once looked at me in the eye and said, Cadet Nance, what actually happened? And why is that so important to ask that question? Yeah, well, history, you know, written by the victors, the old quote, that can be the case. Um, and we also uh, need to understand that every uh, enemy or every uh, defeated enemy is different in every time and place. Some some will quit, some will not. Not not. It's it's been a long time since we, the U.S. military has truly grappled with a national resistance model. I'm talking uh, North Vietnam, uh, a country that uh, commits its own mobilization with unlimited uh, effort. What we're seeing the Ukrainians do now. That actually can be an asymmetric advantage all of its own if we're uh, conversely uh, committing to a limited effort. So that's, that's one of the things I worry about. When I look at the Ru Russia-Ukraine war, I view us as the Russians doing an doing offensive campaign against uh, some, some mid-sized state somewhere that commits to national mobilization to absorb our technology and our fires, which uh, we are supreme with but only so much.
So let's uh, let's walk down the, the path of myth a little bit, and let's talk about probably the single most discussed campaign in modern military history, the 1940 campaign, which you've also spent time mm-hmm. talking to the force about. So I, I think our listeners are probably familiar with the, even some of the details of the campaign, where the, the Nazis invade France and the Low Countries. Um, you have Guderian off with his panzers doing what's called the sickle cut all the way up to the coast and trapping a good portion of the French and British armies in Calais. So w- what do you do with this campaign that's beyond kind of the, the stock YouTube video of which there are, there are probably millions? Oh, it's a cautionary tale. The Germans barely get this done. And when you when you start pulling back and look at the amount of asymmetric advantages they are bringing to play all at one time in this one fleeting moment, uh, it 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 should uh, inspire some humility about what it takes to have that kind of decisive victory over what was arguably the most well resourced, well prepared military in the world at that time, uh, the French army. Um, and so that's that's what I see, not not the glorious, uh, you know, charge to the to the channel that that took down uh, an entire nation in three to six weeks. No, I see that the Germans are applying such a degree of asymmetric advantage to achieve that decisive maneuver that we should really examine our advantages. And ask, are are we in that ballpark, or if it's something well short of that, if our playbook is out. Uh, we should just have some caution about our ability to do a similar uh, takedown of a, a country that perhaps will be well-resourced, that our, ally, our, our adversaries, uh, our great power adversaries, will re, uh, provide equipment, training, intelligence, all the things that NATO is doing for Ukraine right now, we will face uh, the next time we fight an opponent. Okay, so let's kind of dig into that, because the myth is, is that the Germans were so successful. And you're arguing that, well, it wasn't just, uh, so you're saying there's some more nuance there other than just the Germans did the unexpected and crossed a river. Because it's not just that it was a well-trained and well-resourced opponent. It was also a well-thought-out defense, right? Sure. The the French, and the, if there's one thing we can say uh, looking at our, the historical record, is the French and the Germans have not, this isn't the first time that the French and the Germans have fought the, fought each other. Sure. So can you talk through, like, well, what is it about this particular campaign that proved so abnormal? Because if we were to do it nine more times, would we get a result that even looked similar? Yeah, the, it's the scale of the uh, deep penetration, maneuver, and then decision. Uh, very few wars end that conclusively, decisively. Um, and we, you have to look... The, the role of German air interdiction, close air support, the all arms, combined arms panzer division, the amount of novelty the Germans are bringing to bear to achieve these, um, to, ach- to, to enable this maneuver um, in continued movement. And it's close. There are times when it is razor close, getting across the river at Sedan, keeping the, 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 pennant, the uh, invasion moving, uh, dissonance within the German uh, command structure from the lead field commanders all the way up National Command Authority. Um, it's it's close, uh, but we can still we can still learn from this. Um, and so I, again, a cautionary tale. They did not cakewalk to this. It was not uh, ordained that this would happen. Um, 
you know, so I, I, I just keep coming back to the, the amount of just the, the series of asymmetries they brought to bear. And we should be looking at if you if you think you're going to do decisive maneuver, how are you going to going to shape conditions for that? One of the discussions we had in a class a while ago was be careful of being so in love with your plan that when the when the circumstances and the paradigm changes, yep. you have to be willing to adjust to it with the French. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, this was a well-thought-out campaign. The French had pretty much been planning this campaign since 1920. Yep. I'll give them a two-year break for World War One, right? But, <laughs> uh, but they've been planning this from 1920, and it, this is a 20-year they'd thought this through. And, and by the way, probably almost every uh, Orthodox general in Britain, America, other countries in Europe would have agreed Germany. with it. And, and most of the German general officer corps would have said, yes, this is how you win wars. So when you take a look at it and you realize that the paradigm has now shifted, that the enemy has done something which you have already said that if they do that, it won't work. And then it suddenly does. And then it does. And remember, this, the, the, probably the most important thing to understand is, is that fleeting moment of asymmetric advantage. The cat's out of the bag immediately. In 1940, the U.S. is standing up combined arms, mounted uh, divisions, uh, Russia's modernizing their force, the British, and a great uh, kind of uh, contrast is the German uh, Ardennes Offensive in 44, Battle of the Bulge, where they try actually what, what is a very similar maneuver without the advantages. They don't have surprise air dominance. They don't have a logistical posture to set up. They create a very novel logistical system in 1940. They don't have that in 1944 uh, because they've been suffering from strategic bombing for, for years. And suffering from Soviets. And there's a small thing going on on the Eastern Front. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so that's part of the problem. It's a great contrast. See, when you don't have these advantages, you haven't, you don't have the ability to sh to, to shape conditions for the ground forces. Uh, you end up with disaster and attrition. So let's let's go back even further to another example you've used, and, and this will take us in some fruitful directions too. Which is uh, another YouTube favorite, the Napoleon at Austerlitz, uh, which is in many ways antithetical to the two campaigns we just talked about, which feature a lot of incisive operational level maneuver. Um, because, of course, in that case, Napoleon actually cedes the favorable terrain to, the, mm -hmm. to his enemies, the Russians and Austrians, um, and then destroys them with essentially a counter-maneuver. So, so what insights might we learn from that particular battle? Uh, be careful of playing into your enemy's plan. Uh, Napoleon, uh, I mean, you, you're the Napoleonic expert, but it's clear he, he is in the head of his adversary commanders. Uh, and he both shapes conditions right, by uh, weakening his, his right flank, enticing them to envelop him, which any general in warfare would say, that's, that's the move. It's, you, would, you, would you can attain decisive conclusion with less risk than a center penetration. Um, and he knows they want to do that. And he, he offers up those conditions. But he also has an ace in the hole, which is this new combined arms core that can move farther, faster, har fight harder, and he knows he has one coming up uh, on, from a southern route, which is going to really, at the last minute, strengthen that line. And they will be caught uh, 
caught in a, a, a situation of their own making with a very weakened, thin center, and the bulk of their combat power decisively engaged on, on Napoleon's right. And of course, Napoleon also has his aces in the hole, too, additional aces, yeah. where he has Davout, his yeah. core commander that he trusts implicitly to be where he needs him to be at the precise right. moment in time. Essentially marching 80 kilometers in, in a little over two days. Which is a asymmetric capability in itself. Yes. And uh, then he has his core commander holding his right flank, and uh, Dr. Apple, please help me. Uh, was it? should be Soult, if I Soult, correctly. Who is able to hold long enough to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and he's also counting uh, on his superior uh, intuition. Um, you know, the, uh, I guess the, the great analogy of the fog of war, he's actually looking through the fog at the pra- over the Preysen Heights, uh, waiting for that right moment. His generals say go, he says no, it's not right yet. And at the last moment, he does launch that division and shatters their center, effectively destroying their army in one of the most decisive battles of all time. Um, and so that, that's what that's what I think about. That he's sh- the most important thing is he knows this center penetration is extremely risky. It can just turn into a frontal attack that fails, and you're worse off than before you tried it. So he shapes the conditions, and you know, as you always say, every every Hannibal needs a Vero. He has the right Vero who obliges him by doing their own offensive maneuver that sets conditions. And it's worth pointing out, to return to the point earlier, the political leaders are all on the battlefield. The French emperor, the Austrian emperor, and the Russian emperor are all with their respective headquarters. And and so he uh, he has a faster decision cycle because he just has to (laughs) talk to himself. (laughs) They have to deal with these pesky monarchs probably poking their head into the command tent, Mm -hmm. wondering what's going on. Well, and, and... in terms of this example in particular, it, it, just like we did with Guderian a minute ago, what traps might you find for a modern studier of Austerlitz? I, so some of the pitfalls, of course, is uh, probably over-privileging Napoleon's genius. Um, he, in the idea that he has a uh, fixed overall master plan. He's actually marching and uh, m- rolling with the punches as they come. Yeah, he wanted to fight the fight far to the, to the south and west. And this is the, the but that's also him acknowledging the, the, the powerful flexibility of this distributed core approach, which the other armies aren't capable of matching. So he can march and fight on whichever core makes contact can become the the base of fire and they can maneuver everyone else moves the sound of the guns much like happens at gettysburg uh, on day one by the way with uh, the army of northern virginia only napoleon knows that you can't stop there you have to finish uh, with decisive blows massing at a, a decisive point to win quickly and in an it's too often we uh, we focus on the day which is yeah. which is important but there was all the stuff that came prior to it. There, there were the political machinations. Prior to that, it was him setting. It was him setting up uh, Davu where he could get there. There was the cal- the. I will go do a topic near and dear to my heart. The the cavalry action, which was basically he won the security fight weeks before the battle, sure. and then won it again in the battle by having his cavalry square off against the Russian cavalry. And, so. and I would also point out this this shaping is is also theater level. Uh, 
mo by moving quickly, he, he's able to eliminate, uh, I don't know, a third, a half of the Austrian army uh, with very little cost uh, at Ulm. Mm -hmm. And so imagine a scenario where he's facing an army twice the size he did at Austerlitz. It wouldn't have perhaps that center attack doesn't work because they still have reserves sitting there. It might turn into board, you know, where it's just a bunch right. of frontal bloody assaults. Right, so I give Napoleon credit for his vision of how to shape the theater, uh, again, moving quickly enough to defeat the enemy in detail. Now, one of the things that we've been spending some time on is you've been, we alluded to it a little bit before, but we all teach history here at the Command General Staff College, so this is what we get to do in our classrooms on a day-to-day -day basis. But you've actually been doing a little bit more. Could you kind of explain what you what it is that you've been doing and how and what kind of reception have you gotten? Well, uh, of late, the Army has, in case you haven't noticed, has picked up a new operational concept. It's called uh, multi-domain operations, uh, and so provide an opportunity to look relook at some of the campaigns that, uh, frankly, the Army has interrogated before uh, in previous eras, like. The, uh, the onset of airland battle concepts in the 1980s, an opportunity to relook them and see what, what insights can we gain as we embrace this new doctrine, this new approach to war fighting, uh, which is in some parts very new. In some parts, it's just adapting or evolving traditional concepts. Um, and so it offered me a, a, an opportunity just to um, assist some of the uh, units out there that are receiving these assignments to restructure, to reorient on MDO uh, with thinking through their problems. Uh, if you're going to do large-scale combat operations, it's going to look very different from what we did in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. Um, and so to me, history is it, a valuable uh, um, menu of circumstances. So let me let me be the skeptical officer in the back of the briefing you've just given. Um, we don't fight with muskets anymore. We don't fight with Panzer Mark III's anymore, and we don't even necessarily fight with with Saggers anymore, right? Uh, so why should we care about all this these fights that happen with obsolete technology? Yeah, because it, uh, while the technology changes, people haven't, um, and while people are indeed distinct in their individual cultures and societies, it's still human beings struggling against each other in, uh, on the field of strife um, where the consequences are high. And so we can, a lot, you know, a lot of those, those ideas and insights uh, can be extremely helpful. So I, I talk to my students a little bit about Gettysburg now and then because it's kind of incomprehensible to us. Why would Lee order Pickett's charge on day three? Seems destined to fail. It's so obvious the, ta the task is too, too difficult. But if we get into Lee's head and look at the, the culture of the army of that, that time, uh, the doctrine that he's been studying that he perhaps learned at West Point, his experiences in the Mexican War where a decisive maneuver worked, where aggression and initiative paid off because they're using different different kinds of weapons that are not as deadly. Um, and so understanding how he's bringing all that to that point of decision where he says, Virginians, go take the hill, um, can really help us understand about our own decision-making, what biases are influencing the way we view the battlefield, the enemy. Are we underestimating an enemy, frankly, which probably Americans may be prone to do. Well, let me ask skeptical question number two, because it kind of dovetails off of that. 
So you've described a great deal of complexity, and and in academically we would say you have problematized these mm. uh, examples that you've given us. So what it sounds like is you're saying that war is hard to the point where we may not as well even bother. So I, how would you respond to that critique? Uh, war is an extension of politics by other means. We don't have a choice. The, the politics will demand us to go execute the campaign. Um, and one of the things I talk to my students about is uh, some of these are great examples where you will not have a choice you'll be told to go execute this very difficult offensive or defensive task. Like the Egyptians in 73. Like the Egyptians moving out on October 14th and what the generals know of a certainty is going to end badly. Um, and so that's that's the key. A, knowing that the political context will, will drive and shape how we're doing the military operations. Um, and... And that can just, at a minimum, be useful for officers to understand why the orders are coming down the way they are. And what, what I found interesting is, is that a lot of these guys get it when you put it in another term. For instance, we all joke about the, uh, the coach that goes for it on fourth and long. And the, guy, and the, and the attempt fails aren't in American football, and the attempt fails, and we say, what a stupid coach that was. We also have the coach that goes for it on fourth and long, and they win the game, and we say, what a genius that ge- that gentleman they're, was. They're called the Kansas City Chiefs, just <laughs> so we can be clear. Yeah, I, I ask a similar question, which is, do outcomes validate processes? Because often we look at the outcome. We see Guderian taking a core-sized formation out of contact. He literally turned his radio off, out of support, huge exposed flank. And, and I always say to my students, if you presented this as a COA to higher, they would laugh at you. And yep. they all agree. And yet it worked. Yep. Uh, and that, that goes back to your... Pers- one, one, another, another great um, facet of history to look at is how commanders view risk. How are they dialoguing about the risk with their superior? Um, and quite often in these audacious offensives, you end up with a lot of dissonance between the forward commander and not just the policymaker in the capital, but just his senior commander. Um, in 73, when General Sharon is leading the, uh, the gap crossing across the canal, uh, he's in sharp uh, disagreement with the Sinai theater commander who sees that the, lo- the, the line of communication to the river or to the, to the canal is not secure, that the Battle of Chinese Farm is raging, the bridges are stuck at various places, they're trying to get to the, to the canal, and what Sharon sees is everything in front of him that he has an open avenue to break out and really create problems for the Egyptians in their rear area. And, and so that ends up being a very bitter disagreement and, and really a, a negoti- it's a negotiation. And we see with Guderian, with Sharon, they, they bend the rules a little bit uh, because what they see, they see the opportunity in front of them. But it's fair to say they can't see the entire theater either. The theater commander almost always will have a better conception of what's going on across the theater and that, and therefore have a better understanding what the risk to the penetration is at that moment. So let's, let's talk about how you might apply this. Uh, let's say we have this analytical framework you've, you've presented to us. Let's say we want to apply it to a battle we haven't talked about. So I'll just pick a random one from my period. Let's say Battle of Fontenoy in 1745. Um, how might you take that framework you're talking about and apply it to a, a kind of tabula rasa 
historical example? Yeah, so there's there's some basic frames I bring in the classroom. One um, I learned from the, the late Dr. Steve Lauer at the School of Advanced Military Studies. Um, just really gave me some structure in how I look at the interplay of politics, strategy, operations, tactics. And you can under, think about a uh, echelon of these, these levels and you have corresponding, you have national strategy, military strategy, you have operational art, you have tactics, um, and then there's a relationship between all of these in a conversation. Uh, there's feedback loops. Um, and the essential part probably f- for our business here at CGSC is definitely that, that area of operational art, how the field commanders are connecting their tactical actions in space and time to the strategic aims. Um, and uh, that, that's where we can understand again how, pr- how past commanders, how uh, commanders at that battle, how well were they exercising operational art? Were they uh, causing more harm than good with some of their actions? Were they uh, setting up for a Pyrrhic victory, right, where the victory costs too much, and now the, uh, the king is set up to be disadvantaged in the next battle? So um, that, that's one of the frames I would bring this. Um, now, admittedly, it's a limiting frame, as all frames are, and it's it's not just an echelonment of conversations. It's actually much messier. Uh, sometimes entire echelons are cut out of the the uh, the picture, and maybe you have a tactical commander like with uh, Manstein and Hitler uh, gets to the ear of the boss and pitches his plan, and now now that's the plan, even though many senior echelons of the military structure weren't for it. So weird things can happen to. Um, I don't want to say corrupt, but to confuse this process. Now, you've been, uh, been saying out in the force quite a bit recently. What's been the reaction? Uh, I think I think it's been positive. Um, many of these uh, two, three-star commands, divisions, corps, and then also in another area of the Army, the futurists, the guys des- doing force design, concept design for 15, 20 years from now, um, they're all thinking through the hard problems right now. They see what's happening in Ukraine. They know some of the self-imposed limitations of the American way of war. Um, and they're having to negotiate that as they bring in multi-domain operations for the, the, the practitioners in the force. So, you know, the, the armor divisions, the infantry divisions, and then as well as uh, the corps that really have to manage that, that operational level space. Uh, so I think the, the reaction has been positive because... Uh, they're looking for any way to help think through um, the tasks in front of them. All right. It sounds like uh, Army history is in good hands. Dr. Jennings, thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.